Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Tomato Timer. And I'm really excited to join, uh, to have Priya join us today. Priya is currently the COO of AIM, a mental health app that's offering customized guidance programs with the goal of helping people find the techniques that works best for them for a sustainable routine. And she's previously the CEO of Paracoders, an award-winning social impact startup that runs coding courses and tech job placements for refugees. Priya, this is a long time coming and I'm so, so happy to have you on. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I want to kick off by asking you about this transition into an entrepreneurial life. You started off uh, with a very kind of holistic degree and you ended up taking an entrepreneurial pathway. What was the reason and what what led you to it? Um, well, I think I, I fell into the entrepreneurial journey I wouldn't say by chance, uh, but uh, I think I saw it as uh, a mo the most direct, uh, hands-on, and I'd say efficient way of allowing me to, to create impact, uh, which is sort of very much the sort of the center of, of, of my goal. Um, it actually happened because between my my bachelor's uh, and my master's, I have a political science background. I was working at a, a big data NGO called Flowminder um, that used uh, mobile data, anonymized mobile data and sort of satellite imagery as a way of informing humanitarian missions um, and, and policymaking. And the NGO was actually started by uh, a Swedish gentleman called Linus. Um, and perhaps I'm getting some of the sequence of events wrong, but he actually uh, started the NGO in response to the Haiti earthquake, uh, mm -hmm. where uh, you know it was a huge humanitarian disaster. And there was a, a big issue in aid delivery because they were delivering aid to the capital, Port-au-Prince. Uh, but uh, a lot of people had actually fled the capital uh, and were in other areas. Um, and so he essentially saw a, a major issue and realized that you know, mobile data and sort of mobile data tracking movements could be a very effective way of informing aid and making it a lot more effective. And so, again, perhaps I'm getting the, the sequence of events wrong, but I think he, he really just jumped in because he saw a problem and he, he saw a solution. Um, and so that was sort of a, a really inspiring approach. Um, and at the same time, while I was doing my work in that NGO, it was during the, the refugee crisis where thousands and thousands of refugees were being resettled across Europe and, and restarting their lives, fleeing from persecution and conflict. And um, they struggled to, yeah, to find uh, jobs, economic opportunities, uh, to really sort of sustainably rebuild their lives, despite having skills and uh, in previous careers. Yeah. And uh, and so we felt quite uh, powerless. Uh, and uh, I have an immigrant background, so it's something that, that touches me quite strongly. And uh, at the same time, working in a sort of data-centered NGO, I really realized also how, how difficult it was to find quality IT talents. There was a massive shortage in the market. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a colleague of mine actually at Flowminder uh, and I were sort of really talking about this refugee crisis uh, and how we could support and help. Um, and we realized that uh, one potential solution would be to reskill refugees with IT skills, since that was such a highly demanded skill set and one that was so difficult to find in, in the job market. 
And so we really sort of jumped in with a hands-on approach in our free time uh, and mm. organized coding courses. So computers were donated, uh, the teachers were all volunteers. Um, and uh, you know, regardless of the sort of uh, quick and bootstrap start, we were able to, to build a team of, of 15 volunteers and train 35 refugees. Um, and so that really showed me how, uh, yeah, how sort of effective and how direct uh, the impact can be when you sort of jump in and try and solve a solution. And so that was a little bit how I, I started my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and then uh, we had to scale down our operations because I went to London to do my master's. Uh, and after that, I, I joined Power Coders um, as their CEO, which was an NGO that also offered intensive coding courses to refugees with the goal of job integration. Um, and so, it was, I think, uh, really, I mean, there are many ways to make impact, but for me, it was one that was very direct, hands-on, and if you see a problem and can build a solution, um, that was a very powerful way of, uh, of creating impact. Amazing. One thing that strikes me and is something I've, I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about, trying to figure out, is, is this combination of of impact and startups and entrepreneurship and in both cases uh not right now but in the past two kind of entities you're involved with you they were ngos and yet they were also very very startup like they were very agile they were very lean and they were doing stuff in a very um hands-on way versus maybe more historic ngos which have kind of set up been set up in a more um bureaucratic organized fashion so there is of course even in the years since since those since you've launched Power Coders, there's been a huge transition in how startups consider their impact, how this new kind of brand of social impact startups have come out um, and how they're doing really, really great stuff and being aligned to global frameworks. But um, even before that, or as as we kind of have this transition and, you know, people try to understand whether they they consider themselves a not-for-profit, an NGO, a charity, or a or a kind of a profit-making business, um, have, have those identities ever felt, made you feel like, um, like limiting in, in how you approach the problem because I don't think everything that you've done is is very much still you know um, impact driven and very very entrepreneurial. It's like there's I'm sure another like VC back startup would be doing very much the similar practices and have the same skill set as you would have. Um, is that ever like a, a challenge kind of matching those identities and those requirements? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I think sort of skills, uh, startup skills are, are not sort of unique to uh, a for-profit uh, organization. And I think we've really seen uh, a rise in startups and, and NGOs that, uh, that really operate in the startup way, which is sort of results-driven, efficiency-driven, um, yeah. and, uh, and also sort of very, very focused. Uh, and I think that sort of the skills that you learn when running an NGO like a startup are, are incredibly valuable. I mean, that said, uh, I think that sort of bigger NGOs work on maybe much more complex and much more structural issues. And so mm -hmm. I, I think sort of a bigger bureaucracy is not a negative thing, um, but there is something to learn from the way startups are run. Um, this sort of uh, focus on efficiency, this focus on, on results and goals and being very clear about what you want to achieve and, how you can achieve in a lean way, I think, is something that can be sort of really, um, yeah, really learned from, from from bigger NGOs, and and I think has a lot of value when you apply it to, to creating social impact. Um, 
of course, I think for most nonprofits, uh, the issue sometimes is financial sustainability. Um, so I think that, you know, marrying these two worlds is, is not a bad thing. It's actually something that can bring the next generation of NGOs and the next generation of, of organizations that approach social impact in a maybe a more sustainable way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you kind of mentioned the segue in your kind of journey from um, your bachelor's degree, heading off and working on your developing your own um, NGO, heading back for your master's and then going back to power coders. Tell us a little bit about that kind of like, especially that master's, because I feel like that you were already an entrepreneurial pathway. Why did you decide to go for another qualification and how has that added value to what you do today? So I did my master's at LSE in, in local economic development, and the master's focused a lot on um, sort of creating economic development on, on a local scale. So really sort of uh, bringing innovation, bringing um, sort of economic opportunities to uh, sort of cities or, or towns. And I thought that that was very interesting because it's uh, it's an approach that I hadn't learned about and I thought that it had a lot of potential. Um, that said, um, I actually found that I, I didn't really use so much of the content of my master's in, in my work, um, just because then I, I went back to uh, refugee empowerment and economic empowerment. Uh, but I, I think that it, it really brought a lot of value in other ways, um, social sciences or economic development degree allows you to see the gray in things to really understand that uh you know uh, things exist in in a bigger system and there's a lot more complexity in in creating impact and creating um sort of economic opportunities and that it's important to take the entire big picture into account when building solutions otherwise they won't be as effective and also as sustainable um, and another thing that I think I really learned from, from my degree was that uh, it's very important to engage stakeholders. So if you're building a solution to, to create change, uh, it can't happen in a vacuum. You need to engage stakeholders. You need to bring in the relevant people. And um, yeah, you, know, you need to create a solution that is inclusive um, and that takes into account you know, the issues and the people that you're, you're trying to, to, to help. Did you say, um, I, I don't know if I misheard, but did you say that, that a, a social science degree allows you to see the grey in things? Yeah, I mean, I think it really allows you to see the, the complexity, but also the sort of systemic structures that exist behind issues. Um, and I think that that's absolutely crucial when building a solution is to understand that, you know, there's not a, a black and white solution to problems, but that they exist within a more complex structure. And if you really want to create change, it needs to be obviously direct change, but also systemic change for it to be sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and oftentimes we do go in this polarized view just because it's faster, smarter, and especially in the startup space, we, we need to get stuff out so quickly. We, we're unable to do deep thinking. And I'm sure that uh, having the space to, to pursue a postgraduate qualification maybe gave you that time as well. And I think um, my next question is a little bit uh, something you've already probably touched upon, but what is the social problem that's closest to your heart? Uh, that's a, a tough question. Um, mm. There are a lot. Uh, I, I think the, the social problem that's probably closest to my heart is um, that of unequal access to, to opportunity. 
Um, I, I come, as I mentioned, from an immigrant background. I'm, I'm half Indian, half Italian. And uh, my, my Indian grandfather was the first person in his village to be educated. Um, mm -hmm. And that education really gave him access to, to opportunities. He built a career in the UN. And uh, I mean, the, the ethos that I grew up with was that if you do have access to privilege and opportunities, you should leverage those to, to create opportunities and privilege for others. Um, and I think um, I mean, that holds true for, for many issues and unequal opportunities really limits. Um, yeah, it, it really is a huge limitation, both in terms of education, access to jobs, but it can even be access to, to mental health support, um, sort of unequal opportunities really dictates how lives run and how their lives are formed. Uh, and so I think that that's a, a major social problem that's very close to my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that in the flavor of education is, is exactly what what my kind of um, kind of it's it's a difficult thing to say what's your most what's the favorite problem you're solving <laughs> it sounds a little bit uh like a weird question to ask but uh i also uh, at least for myself I, I think that we do need kind of an angle towards the problem solution we're, we're trying to work on because otherwise the world has a whole bunch of many problems and um generalists and specialist arguments and all the kind of stuff comes into it um and I, I feel like in some ways that's why like the stgs have been really helpful at least for me because they help categorize and allow you to you know even if you're working on multiple goals you have some sort of like framework and guidance towards which problems are, are kind of like affecting you and how can you be addressing them and especially if you go down to the sub goals it's it's so incredible how the kind of the granularity with which you can approach problems because you know uh, i went in with this kind of bigger theme of addressing educational access and then i went into it and then you talk about basic literacy you talk about lifelong learning you talk about um access to post-secondary education you're like wow okay so this this breaks down and um each one is a problem worth solving because it's you know it's addressing and affecting millions of people but um it gives you a little bit of like kind of more um clarity and how you approach it and at the end of the day you need to be kind of part of that ecosystem of people solving a problem versus simply you know agonizing over the spilt milk and just like oh, i can't read there's too much to do um so i appreciate kind of like uh, you kind of unpacking that a little bit for me i want to transition back to kind of refugee education and skilling um what is the kind of what is your feeling on the difference between economic empowerment and aid um philosophically which which i don't know if you want to talk about preferences or the kind of advantages and disadvantages of the two um, well, I think it's, well, it's a complicated question, but I, I think they're very interrelated. Um, sort of if I call back sort of uh, the work we did at Power Coders, our mm -hmm. central focus and central mission was economic empowerment. And I think it's really important that sort of any social impact uh, initiative, especially one that aims to, to change lives for the better, sort of economic, economic empowerment and sustainable access to opportunity has to be the end goal mm -hmm. because it's the only sustainable solution um, that uh, that will really create sustainable change and sustainable impact that said uh, you know power coders uh, our focus was not on just on training but it was really on job integration um, so our our metrics of success were not the amount of students that graduated it was really uh, how many students were able to get an internship after the program and then mm -hmm. how many students were then able to get a job. 
um, which I think is, is really crucial because that's a really a sustainable and a long-term solution. That said, uh, we really relied on the fact that our students' basic needs were being met um, by either through government support or other programs, for example, access to accommodation, access to financial support, uh, food. And so I, I think that aid plays a major role because you can't really economically empower someone unless their basic needs are being met. It's a, it's a crucial condition mm -hmm. that needs to exist before you can do the work of economic empowerment. And so I think sometimes people see them as one or the other. I see them mm -hmm. as very interrelated. Um, you need to yeah, you need to create conditions where people have their basic needs being met, because if they're not, then it's hard to invest in your future if you're not sure where your next meal is, uh, is coming from or where you're sleeping at night. And so um, I think that, you know, a lot of aid initiatives only focus on aid. And that definitely is problematic because it's meeting a short term need, not a long term yeah. need. Yeah. Uh, but both both need to be considered when you build uh, solutions and when you build uh, initiatives. And, and kind of expanding more on that, when we're considering um, refugee crises, but also like uh, other natural disasters, which are now more and more occurring because of the climate change. Um, again, we're in this kind of conundrum about like going in and solving the problem because people are hungry, people are hurt, people are unwell and people need support and that's, that's aid. But at the same time, um, with the kind of like short attention span of human beings in this, in this generation or in this time, combined with um, sensationalism where you're kind of getting news and, and things point, pointed out at you on your social media feeds, which are forcing you to do something in an immediate stage, but then don't want to follow through. Like how, how do these two continue to play a role or, or how do we um, ensure that um, kind of moving forward, these aid organizations or kind of they integrate this kind of yes we've we've solved that immediate crisis but then we've also supported to ensure that there's build back better there's there's some form of like continuation beyond that one moment where some a disaster struck and people were left in a very very difficult condition because oftentimes though their homes were destroyed their jobs were gone they, they don't have anything else to do so like it's almost like the impact of of aid can last for a few days, hours, years, you know, and then how do you kind of make that long term with empowerment? Yeah, I mean, a, a big issue is the short attention span um, of, of, of issues. And as you say, you know, a, a disaster is sensational, but long term work is much less, but yeah. very important. So I think that is a, a big issue. Um, I mean, the, the solution to that is, I think, very complex um, and perhaps sort of the way we finance uh, aid and sort of economic empowerment initiatives needs to be rethought. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, you know, I, I come back to my earlier point, I mean, aid is crucial and it is absolutely essential, especially in situations like disasters uh, or sort of major, major um sort of, uh, yeah, uh, disaster situations. But I think uh, many aid programs are built with a short-term idea in mind. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, 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 I may be wrong, but I think a lot of sort of aid programs are also not built in collaboration with economic empowerment programs. They tend to be kept separate. Yeah. Um, and the ideal would be to really have, you know, aid programs that are very much married and very much built in close collaboration with a long-term view 
Um, so not just putting a bandaid on the problem, but really treating the problem. Yeah. Um, which would also be very economically efficient because sure. you always need aid unless you build back better and you build sustainable solutions. Um, and so I'm sure that it, it's, it happens, but um, I know that a lot of UN agencies work kind of in, in a vacuum and, you know, they only deal with their, their mandates. Uh, mm. I think sort of a lot of sort of cross organizational uh, cross border collaborations uh, would be very important when you build solutions. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to now transition to, to your current work. Um, you went from power coders and you're now leading AIM Health, um, which is kind of looking at mental health in a much more non-stigmatized and generalized way. Um, I would love to learn a little bit more about kind of once again, what what led you to this this kind of step in your journey, but also what you're working on, what's kind of exciting you the most right now? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, mental health has been a something that's been very close to my heart. I've seen its impact on a, on a personal level, your family and friends, uh, but also on a on a systemic level. And I think COVID really brought this issue to the forefront: the the impact mm -hmm. of mental health. Um, and, uh, and something that, that really struck me were the, the statistics, uh, the fact that you know one in four people will suffer from a mental health issue in their life. And actually, after COVID, I think that number has unfortunately drastically increased. Yeah. Uh, but despite this, uh, over 80% of people actually won't seek help uh, for that issue. And it can be really um, a destructive and debilitating uh, situation to be in and we don't treat mental health like we treat physical health yeah it's often very underestimated um and i think that's also reflected in, in healthcare systems and, and access so back to an unequal access to, to yeah. opportunities or unequal access to care um you know, therapy is, is very expensive it's often not covered appropriately by by insurances and even when it is um they're just not enough therapists out there. So there's there's still a problem of supply and demand. There's way too much demand for help and not enough supply. And so that's sort of what we're trying to look into at Amy. We're trying to touch on not just sort of mental health support, but also prevention, because a lot of people that then do reach out to therapists do it when the situation has gotten very bad. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, based on our research, we found that there are sort of three major dimensions that can really help you improve your mental health at whatever stage. Um, the first is, is guidance. So the ability to understand and note the thoughts that you're having, the emotions that you're having. So to really be able to have a, a level of self-reflection and that really requires a, a high level of guidance. The second is then finding the right tools and techniques that, that work for you. Um, there are a lot of mental health apps there, out there, but a lot of them focus on just meditation, which is, can be an effective technique, uh, but for many it, it, it may not be. And there are a lot of other proven tools and techniques out there um, that could equally help you make progress. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of people just don't know. Um, and then the third is, is consistency and routine. So really being consistent and maintaining uh, a mental health routine and integrating it into your daily life so that you can really make progress on the long yeah. term. Um, and so we're building an app um, that offers uh, really personalized step-by-step -step guidance 
that walk you through your, your symptoms, allow you to better understand also the thought patterns that lead to these feelings. Um, and at the same time, through these guided journeys, we introduce them to various proven techniques and tools um, in a way that allows them to understand sort of what's most effective for them. Um, mm -hmm. And this is all built with the end goal of allowing them to build their own personal mental health routine uh, and really staying consistent. Um, and our, our goal would be to not just uh, address people that are you know, in a really bad state with their mental health, but people that maybe are at the beginning stages of anxiety, stress, low self-esteem. So we have a lot of issues that can then morph into something a lot more serious and a lot mm -hmm. more like, limiting in terms of their life. Uh, and, and to really allow them to sort of build the right tools, build the resilience that they need to then um, you know, make progress and, and improve. Amazing. Um, I'm sure it's it's a critical um, problem, but also uh, and I really I, I appreciate the kind of the holistic nature with which you're approaching this solution. And, and, and as you said, you know, considering it before you end up in a very, very bad situation. Um, we're almost at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask one final question from you. Um, what is one piece of advice you would share with yourself as you were just starting your bachelor's degree at Bristol? Uh, <laughs> I think one that I'm still learning on um, is this idea of uh, yeah, not being too hard on yourself uh, if you make mistakes, if you don't have sort of the perfect solution. Um, and this idea of sort of learning from failure, asking for help, uh, sort of brainstorming with people, I think that's a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and especially entrepreneurs that are centered around social impact you know, want to see results immediately. And if they fail at that, they feel like they've failed the mission. Um, and I think that uh, I, I very much took that very personally um, in my in my past career. And so mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, uh, entrepreneurship is an experience and it's a learning journey and you should accept failure, learn from it, ask for help which I think is a, a standard uh, <laughs> advice for, for many entrepreneurs, but it, it really is one that I'm learning a lot from. Yeah. Um, and then uh, another one that I think has really helped is uh, when things seem massive and, and huge in terms of their importance, big decisions, um, it's really helped me to ask myself, you know, what's the worst that can happen if I get this decision wrong? Um, and short of uh, I will die or everything will be ruined, the decision isn't so scary uh, and, you know, you have to, to take a chance and, and make yeah. a decision that you think is right. Uh, and it takes a lot of the pressure off it when you ask yourself, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And mm. when you work with refugees whose lives have been turned upside down, the worst that can happen, actually, if you put it into context, is not that bad. Um, and so then I think it, it allows you to make quicker, yeah. better and less stressful decisions. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't be too hard on yourself. I love this. And uh, I think it's something I'm going to uh, take away because of the uh, past few stressful weeks for myself as well. So thank you so much. Bill. It's been a real pleasure. And I'm so glad we finally got to do this together. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you.